historically, Christians have been known as people of the book. People of the book. And that book is the Bible. It is our rule, our guide for life and faith. Our book, our Bible, has a a makeup to it, a DNA, if you will. The Bible tells this singular story, but that singular story is comprised of multiple mini-stories coming from different literary genres, different historical contexts, different authors that all tell one overarching big story, a story of redemption, God pursuing a rebellious people to redeem them. If you've got some familiarity with it, you know it's made up of two testaments, the Old and the New Testaments. I have a question for you this morning. Which testament do Christians often major on? The new. Which testament do you tend, you read personally the most? Which testament do Christian preachers preach the most? The new, the new, the new. Yet, if you observe the breakdown of your Bible, just notice there's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And of the volume of words, 75% are Old Testament, 25% are the New. If Christians are truly people of the book, then we need to seek to rightly read and understand all of God's Word, the entirety of that book, to faithfully apply it to our lives. Well, we come to a passage this morning where Jesus himself helps us immensely to rightly read, understand, and apply the entirety of that book. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find that on 810, page 810. If you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, We would love to give you a Bible in the entryway. There are bookcases. The bookcase closest to the restrooms, you'll find some hardback black Bibles. Please take one. If a friend needs one, you can give them one as a gift. We're continuing this morning in our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. That covers Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Jesus' well-known sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And we've subtitled this series, The Ways of the King. Because the Sermon on the Mount outlined the characteristics of the king and his kingdom. What it looks like to live as a citizen of King Jesus' kingdom. The ways, the qualities, the characteristics. How we ought to walk and live and conduct ourselves. And so that is the subtitle of this series, The Ways of the King. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read Jesus' words in verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, 
Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The aim of this message is that Jesus came not to trash the Old Testament, but to fulfill it for us. Jesus came not to trash the Old Testament, but to fulfill it for us. This passage that I read is exceedingly important for understanding the whole of the Bible. It's an interpretive key, as it were, for you to use to unlock all of the Bible, how you rightly read and understand it. You see, what Jesus does here is he clarifies God's intent, God's heart, God's purpose behind the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. This key passage sets in motion a series of six clarifications that Jesus is going to make in the next six paragraphs in the Sermon on the Mount. We will cover these over the next six weeks, bit by bit, paragraph by paragraph. So you'll notice this pattern that Jesus has in Matthew 5, 21 through 48. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Six times over. So he's making clarifications on how people understood God's word and his intent behind the word. Jesus comes, the true interpreter of God's word, and he clarifies how we're to understand God's purpose behind it. This is a key passage for understanding your Bible. What Jesus does here is just he lifts the hood for us, uh, like a skillful mechanic lifts the hood to rightly understand, for other people to see inside the guts of the engine. That's what Jesus does here. He lifts the hood on how we're to rightly understand the engine of God's word. We'll unpack this important paragraph in four parts. Four parts. First, Jesus speaks a word of clarification. Jesus speaks a word of clarification. Verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Why does Jesus feel the need to make this statement here and now at this juncture of his ministry? Well, evidently, people are thinking that he has come to diminish the importance and the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures. That kind of mentality is circulating early on in his ministry, and you see it. I'll give you a few examples. The religious establishment of the day sees Jesus as trying to undermine God's word. Two, two brief examples. In Mark chapter 2, verse 18, Jesus is questioned about fasting. Some come to him and say, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to Jesus and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. They're concerned about Jesus not fulfilling some of the fasting laws in the Old Testament. We see another example in John chapter 2. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews, aghast, then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And then John gives us this little parenthetical note, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Early on in Jesus' ministry, Mark 2, John 2, those are episodes 
in the early stages of his ministry, people, the thought is circulating that he's come to just turn upside down and to trash the Old Testament scripture. So Jesus feels the need to clarify this because that's the kind of communication that was circulating at the time. This guy has come to upend the religious establishment, to do away with the law of Moses. They're misinterpreting Jesus' purpose and approach to the Old Testament, and so he seeks to clarify it. Now, I'm using the phrase Old Testament. I realize it's not here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. I'm using that phrase, Old Testament, purposefully. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, the law represents the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes it's called the Torah or the Pentateuch. First five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Hebrew Bible is what is sometimes known as tripartite, three parts. Three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so the law, the first five books, and then you have the prophets, you have the former prophets, which are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, the, the historical books sometimes. Those are the former prophets. And then you have the latter prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12 minor prophets, all of the big section of the prophets. And then you have the writings, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Those are the three large, big category parts of the Bible. But it seems that Jesus is only referring to Two of them right here, the Law and the Prophets. Well, friends, sometimes the writings are actually included in the Prophets. The writings are included in that category of the Prophets. I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, the same book of the Bible that we're in right now, just a few chapters over. We find in Matthew 13, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes, note, Psalm 78, verse 2. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So even the, the, the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those are, those are also considered prophetic books. So by saying the law and the prophets, Jesus is speaking to the entirety of the Old Testament. That's what he's referring to here. That's why I'm using Old Testament just to clarify for us. He's speaking of all of the Hebrew scripture, the law, the prophets, the writings, all of it, sum total of it all. And contrary to the circulating opinion of the religious establishment of the day, Jesus not come to trash that Old Testament. He didn't come to dispose of it, to make void or to belittle it in any way, but rather he came to fulfill it, he says. What does he mean by fulfill that Old Testament? What Jesus means is that he came to complete and to clarify God's true intent behind his word. To show its, its truest intent, its meaning, its, its right interpretation. And so we'll follow these six upcoming clarifications that Jesus is going to make on anger and lust and retaliation. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, He's showing us the truest intention behind those words that God had stated historically. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so important, because it shows us how we understand our Bible, how we understand all the Old Testament. He's revealing the true intent 
and interpretation behind God's word, all of the Old Testament. Another way to think of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament is that all of the Old Testament points to him like a giant marquee sign, a giant billboard that says, this is about Jesus. In fact, that's what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, the scriptures bear witness to me. They testify to me. So all of the Old Testament is a giant marquee billboard pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. It's fi- it finds its fulfillment, its interpretation in him. Now, some of the laws, some of the institutions that we read about in the Old Testament have fallen out of use, haven't they? They've been subsumed in, in, his, in his ministry, engulfed by his person and by his work. Well, how do we understand this? The sacrificial system. We, friends, and thankfully, you won't see me with my hands dipped in blood sacrificing animals here on any Sunday. Praise the Lord. We don't have to do that. The sacrificial system has been fulfilled, how? In the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you're new to reading the Bible, you're going to get bogged down sometimes when you're walking through Leviticus, I guarantee it. But friends, you need to see Leviticus as a giant marquee sign saying, Jesus, his sacrifice at the cross, that's where this is pointing. The Old Testament is a shadow that points to the substance of Jesus Christ. The temple, you're going to get bogged down in temple instructions in Exodus, I guarantee it. About Exodus 25 through 40. What is that all about? The intricate details, the beauty, the precious materials. It's a giant billboard. It's pointing to Jesus, the most beautiful temple, the most beautiful meeting place between God and people. It's Jesus. He is that meeting place. He is the place that we can go to commune with God. So yes, some of these things have fallen out of use because Jesus has fulfilled them. He's completed them. Other laws continue to be binding, and Jesus actually shows us the truest application of them. For example, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's a wonderful commandment in the old, and Jesus shows the truest application of it. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus shows us how to truly love people. It's a sacrificial heart-pouring-out kind of love, a love that costs you. So he's showing God's truest sense of Leviticus 19, 18 is what Jesus says in John 15, laying down your life for somebody. That's the kind of love that God has in mind. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He has completed and clarified God's true intent of the Old Testament. Jesus first speaks a word of clarification. Second, Jesus speaks a word of assurance. In verse 18, a word of assurance in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, the KJV says a a tittle, a little stroke of a pen will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here Jesus provides this assuring proof of the power and the enduring authority of God's word. People think he's diminishing the importance and the value of Hebrew Scripture. Well, Jesus states in no uncertain terms that this word will endure. It has power and authority until all the ages. 
Not an iota will pass away. That's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. What we, what we read is I. In Greek, it's iota. Teeny little letter. Not an iota will pass away. Not a dot will pass away. That's a tiny pen stroke. Think apostrophe. Not one tiny little mark in all of the Scripture, all of the Old Testament Hebrew Scripture, will pass away. It all holds eternal significance. It's of the utmost importance. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall remain forever. What a glorious truth about the enduring power, authority, and usefulness of God's word. And I just want to ask you, as you think about your life, what kinds of investments are you making? How do you use your time, and to what eternal significance are those things? Is that time usage? I've been so convicted of this as a pastor, as I just sort of evaluate the direction of my own leadership here at the church, what we as elders and church leaders think about, pray for in the life of our church. I've just been brought back to the simple basics of God's word. If God's word is what endures forever, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever, then it seems right to me that we need to major everything that we do on God's word. We need to sing God's word. We need to teach God's word. We need to study it as individuals in one-on-one relationships over coffee and lunch in small group settings like community groups or discipleship groups. We must major on God's word because it is the only thing that lasts and will matter. Make eternal investments in your life by connecting yourself to God's word, by steeping yourself in God's word. Read it regularly. It's the most important thing you can do in the course of a day is just sit with it. We have it in our own heart language. What a privilege. Read God's word. Take it in. Hear it in settings like these. Study it in smaller groups. Make eternal investments by prioritizing the reading, the studying, and the application of God's word. I mentioned this morning in our, in our opening prayer time, I was so blessed to hear of the women who were working through a, a resource called the Simeon Trust, the Simeon Trust Workshop, to help women handle God's word in small group settings, in more public settings, teaching other women, teaching children. What a wonderful investment that will pay dividends unto eternity. We just started one, Alex Grant, who's came up and shared uh, our time of confession and the offering time. He's done a fabulous job leading out for men. So we had eight guys on Thursday night learning practical tools to teach God's word. What a, these are eternal investments. What are you focused on? And does it hold water? unto eternity. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Not one iota, not one jot is going to pass away. It's eternally significance. Rest assured in the power of God's word. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you have zero exposure to God's word. I just want to tell you that we're glad that you're here. And maybe a next step for you is just take a free Bible. Take me up on that. Go get a free Bible. 
Open it up this week and just, just begin. Read a psalm and start in John. Read one psalm and one chapter of John. And if there's a friend here who brought you, ask them to study it with you. Just take this next simple step of reading God's word. It's powerful. It transforms us. So Jesus speaks a word of clarification. Jesus speaks a word of assurance. Thirdly, Jesus speaks a word of caution. He speaks a word of caution in verse 19. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the warning here is not to relax or to loose. The verb is to loosen or to loose your grip on God's word. Read it, treasure it, hold it tightly, and teach it. It's a warning against losing your grip. Friends, here's the inertia in our, in our lives the, the, the natural way is to, to let loose of God's word, to loosen your grip. The natural way is not to go tighter and tighter. The natural way, the cultural current is to, oh, are you sure? Are you sure that's what that means? You know, you're going to have to fight tooth and nail to carve out time to read God's word. You have to fight. As you engage people that you love, if you're a Christian, you're engaging non-Christians, it's going to be an uphill battle to win people over to the rightness and the authority and the usefulness of God's word. The inertia is loose, relaxing. That, that's, that's the flow. That's the current. And you just need to know that. This is expectation management. Hold on to it. And you've got you to work hard by God's grace, by the strength that he provides to tighten your grip and to treasure it. Because it's not going to happen naturally. So Jesus exercised a caution. Beware loosening your grip on God's word. I began our worship gathering by reading Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. If you want to go to a passage where you can tighten up your grip and inspire you to hold it and treasure it, go to Psalm 19. It's beautiful. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is true, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. My goodness, do we think of God's word like that? Do my kids think of my commandments like that? Oh, it is a battle to see, help them see my heart behind those commands. And in the same way, in our own sinful nature, we're going to bristle against the commandments of God's word. But friends, you've got to see his love behind his words. What is it that causes Laura and I to tell our little son, Dane, not to put his hand up on the stove. It's a desire to love and to protect him. God's words in the Bible are all designed for our good. You got to believe that. 
It's for our well-being. He, he wants good things for us. But we kind of twist that. It's, it's the age-old tactic of, this, of Satan, of the enemy in Genesis 3. Ah, uh, God, did he really say that? You won't surely die. He's, he's withholding from you. He's an old miser. He's withholding. No. God is good. His commandments are good, and they're intended for your good. See his goodness behind it, and it will endear your heart to him and empower you to obey. Goodness behind every commandment. This warning about relaxing our grip on God's word is, is not just in our own personal reading and interpreting. It's also about our teaching. Notice what Jesus says in verse 19. Therefore, who relaxes one of the, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same? Every Christian is called to be a teacher. Now, that may seem overwhelming to you. Every Christian is called to be a disciple maker. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, go and make disciples of all nations. That's a collective calling for all of us. We're called to be teachers, investors in other people, holding out the treasures of God's word. So we need to not just hold tightly to God's word as individual readers, studiers, but also as teachers. What setting do you have to pass on that word? As you, are you a small group leader? Are you a kids ministry teacher? How are you investing in a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate? Just hold God's word tightly. Careful study and preparation, thoughtful delivery of how you're going to communicate those truths. Jesus speaks a word of clarification. Jesus speaks a word of assurance. Jesus speaks a word of caution. And fourthly and finally, Jesus speaks to the need of transformation. Heart transformation. We see this in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is shocking. If you don't know much about the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the experts in God's law, the expert readers, interpreters, and teachers of God's law. I mean, you would think that this is exasperating that Jesus says, these are the experts and we've got to exceed them in our own righteousness? How could this be? No one in that culture knew the word better. No one in that culture seemed to obey God's word better. Well, the problem was, the scribes and the Pharisees focused on the external. Jesus is tar targeting the internal. He's targeting the heart. He's seeking transformation within, not a facade on the outside. And that is the danger of religion, friends. It's about a facade on the outside. You want people to think that you're okay and that you have it all together. We do it every Sunday. You come in here, I come in here, we act like we're okay, we're not okay. Jesus is about inner transformation. It's a heart obedience. It's about what's within you and the deep recesses of your soul. That's what Jesus is targeting, not the superficial facade on the outside. This is an illustration from Jesus' own ministry later on in the book, towards the end, Matthew 23. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, the same two groups that he references here in Matthew 5, verse 20, he talks about later. The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. That is the, the teaching seat. 
And so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works that they do. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, their garments. They love the place of honor at the feast and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi and saying long, loud prayers for all to see them. They're focused on a facade, on the external, and Jesus says it can't be about that. It's got to go to the internal, to the heart. Jesus is calling for inner transformation, not for outward behavior modification, but inner transformation. Because if you change the heart, everything else flows out of the heart in the right way. How is this level of righteousness attainable? That is a natural question that we must ask. How is this level of righteousness actually attainable? Well, Jesus' words here are meant to foster our utter dependence upon him. When you read the Sermon on the Mount, when you read the Beatitudes, you are supposed to think, who is sufficient for these things? This is high and unattainable. Exactly. Exactly. Because once you are there, you'll be on your knees and you're dependent upon God. His words are meant to foster our dependence upon him. We talked about the first beatitude, the beatitude being the, the gateway beatitude. What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And poverty of spirit means to know that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have no spiritual resources before a, a holy God, and that you need his grace. You need his supply. You need him. Like we sang, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. That's the essence of getting into the kingdom. Lord, I don't have the resources spiritually. Only you do. I'm desperate for you. Please come. Please come and deliver me. Please come and supply me. These words of Jesus are meant to foster our dependence. We cannot be righteous on our own. Our righteousness is an alien righteousness meaning it comes outside of us and it comes to us by faith in Christ. This is the essence of a relationship with God forecast by Jeremiah who foretold of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There is a miraculous engraving upon human hearts that Jeremiah forecasts. We will be empowered to obey because God is sending his spirit into us to obey. We will know God's law because God will write it on our hearts. It's an alien work. It's outside of us coming into us, empowering us to live this way, to walk this way. There is a miracle in our salvation. There is a miracle transfer that happens. If you trust in Jesus Christ... You hear of his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his triumphant resurrection on the grave. If you hear of that news and you say, yes, I believe that he actually did that. He's historical. He did that for me personally. Once you trust in Christ, 
all of his merits, all of his goodness, all of his perfection is, is transferred to your account. So your account spiritually, which read zero, now reads infinity because it's been transferred from Christ's account to yours. It's a, it's a miraculous exchange. It's the essence of salvation. That's how our righteousness can exceed that of the Pharisees because when we trust in Christ, his righteousness comes to us, a miraculous transfer of merit into our previously empty account. That's the essence of salvation. You and I all, all will stand before God someday and we'll have to give an account. And on that day, where do we look? We're going to have to stand before God and he's going to say, why should I let you into the gates of eternity in heaven with me? And if your answer begins with the first person pronoun, I did this, I was a pretty good person, I took care of my kids, I paid my, it's, it's going to be insufficient on that day. You must start that statement, that response with the third person. He did it for me. He did it for me. Christ died for me. I trust in him. His merits became mine. That's the way of heaven. He died for me. I didn't deserve it, but I trust in him. That's the way into eternity with him. Jesus came not to trash the Old Testament, but to fulfill it for us. For us. His obedience transferred into our account. We live in the city of champions, don't we? I love to go to Logan Airport. I love to see all the banners. Bill Russell and the Celtics, Tom Brady, Patriots, Red Sox, Bobby Orr and the Bruins. It's unbelievable. It's a city of champions. I remember February 2017, the Patriots came back from 28 to 3 with two minutes left in the third quarter. I mean, people were, they were going to bed. They were, they were leaving, turning the TV off, and then suddenly, suddenly, this turnaround. They pulled, they pulled ahead. They won the game. And I remember watching the news afterwards. There's people flying through the streets of Boston. We did it. We did it. And I thought to myself, we did it. They didn't do anything. The Patriots did it. You're just a fan. But why do we say we did it when our team wins? This is what's called representation. By our cheering and our faith in them, it's like their, vi their victory becomes ours. We did it. And so it is with Christ. When you trust in him and place your confidence in Christ, you can say, we did it because his victory becomes yours. That's how it is. That's how we're saved. Because of what he did for us, it comes to our account. We're a part of it by faith in him. We're united to him. He did it. His work becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours when we place our trust and confidence in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the chance to study your word. What a privilege it is to open it, to, to seek, to understand it, to rightly apply it in our lives. We're thankful that you are our greatest aid in understanding your word. You are the interpretive center of all the Bible. Thank you for this portion here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, which just gives us a key for unlocking how we ought to understand and apply your word. Thank you that you've fulfilled it. 
you've clarified and completed your Father's heart behind it. God, help us to cling to you as we read the word, both as individuals and as a community, and to seek to faithfully share it with friends, neighbors, family members, children, where they all could see the eternal, enduring power of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.